There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. For today's festive episode of Not Just the Tudors, I thought I'd start a new occasional series that might be appropriate at this time of year when we've got a bit more time to sit down and watch something. It's quite cold outside and what we really want to do is snuggle on the sofa. So this is called the Tudor Box Set Binge and there are two parts to this podcast. In the first part, I'll be talking about What are the things that you could watch if you wanted your Tudor hit over Christmas, over the holidays? I'm going to give little introductory reviews to the things that are out there. And then I'm going to choose one that I think you should watch and give one in-depth film review about what is fact, what is fiction and how fun the ride is. And I promise to come back to some of those I mentioned in passing for this kind of in-depth historical film review in the future. I should say this is going to be a list of dramas, so films or TV series that are basically fictionalised. There are also some very good documentaries out there about Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, I'm told, but that's not what I'm talking about today. Most of these films or dramas, series, are available to rent, to buy or stream through places like Amazon Prime, Google Play, YouTube, Apple TV, etc. And you can find out where to find them by using something like justwatch.com. I'll tell you if they're elsewhere. So what might you settle down to watch about the Tudors this festive season? Well, let's first of all think about what there is about Henry VIII. And the first place we have to start is with the first English language film ever made about Henry VIII, The Private Life of Henry VIII, made in 1933, starring Charles Lawton as Henry. Lawton won an Oscar for his portrayal, and it was the first British film to conquer the American market. Now, it's a very interesting film. It created the paradigm for cinematic versions of Henry. So if you want to know where lots of our ideas about Henry VIII come from, you need to watch this. And I'm going to review it properly another time. But for now, I'd just say 
It's called The Private Life because it focuses only on private matters, so there's no religion or politics in here. It focuses on the wives. And for a modern viewer, I think you'll find it surprising to see which wives are dealt with and which come to the forefront. And it creates a very lasting image of Henry VIII, both by Lawton trying to personify Hans Holbein's portrait of him, and also the classic scene of him eating chicken legs with his hands, gnawing at them and then throwing them over his shoulder, which Henry VIII would never have done. It's supposed to be a metaphor for sex, but more on that in another episode. Then you also might like to watch A Man for All Seasons. This was made in 1966. It came from Robert Bolt's play. It's the story of Sir Thomas More, and it's based on the play that was so successful on Broadway. In the film, we've got Paul Schofield as More, Robert Shaw as Henry VIII. It's a very enjoyable film. It focuses on More and his refusal to swear to Henry VIII's supremacy, but it's reconceived really as a sort of freedom of speech issue. But what I particularly like about it is Shaw's depiction of Henry VIII. He's charismatic, he's steely-eyed, and he's totally unpredictable. And I think it conveys something of the terror that Henry's courtiers must have felt. There's one scene in which his courtiers have to look to him to know whether they are allowed to laugh or not. And I think it therefore gets to the heart of Henry's tyranny in very interesting ways. Then there's Anne of the Thousand Days. You can see I'm going through them chronologically here in terms of when they were made. This was made in 1969. It was also derived from a Broadway play by Maxwell Anderson. And it stars Richard Burton as Henry and Genevieve Bourgeaud as a very beautiful Anne Boleyn. It was made at a very interesting time, at the same time, more or less, as Barbarella, the same year as Easy Rider. And to be honest, watching it today, its sexual politics seem pretty startling. It was obviously conceived of as a romantic film, but it has a pretty violent edge and a pretty misogynistic core. The idea is that the thousand days are supposed to be, I suppose, Anne's reign or their relationship, which involves little truncating of time. And of these thousand days, there was one day where they loved each other equally. So he loved her more and then she loved him more. What it is is a very interesting look at relationships between men and women in the 1960s, rather more than the 1530s. But it does reflect on Henry's acquisitive, selfish personality. And for that, it's an interesting watch. But you might have to cringe and grin and bear it a little bit throughout it, I think. Not, however, quite as much as you'll have to do if you choose to watch Carry On Henry. This was made in 1971. It was one of those 30-odd carry-on films. And for those who've somehow evaded the carry-on films, how should we summarise them? Well, bawdy British comedy? Always with the same cast. Sid James here as Henry VIII, Barbara Windsor, Kenneth Williams and all the rest of them. Henry VIII is, I suppose at best, you could say, a lovable rogue. Pretty interesting, again, for the sexual politics of the early 70s, what made people laugh back then. But to be frank, it's ridiculously dated and sexist. It's pretty ghastly. I would avoid it personally. Each to their own. Also, I'm going to rush to recommend the next film, which is The Other Blind Girl of 2008. It's a film based on the novel by Philippa Gregory. It was written by Peter Morgan, who had previously 
written the TV film Henry VIII from 2003 with Ray Winstone. Might review that one in the future as well. This film, The Other Boleyn Girl, has Natalie Portman as Anne Boleyn, Scarlett Johansson as Mary Boleyn, and Eric Banner as Henry VIII, who's a very handsome Henry VIII, albeit brunette. So it's full of pretty people. In terms of its historical accuracy, Alex von Tunzelman described Banner's Henry as nothing more than a gullible sex addict in wacky shoulder pads. The inaccuracies are rife. It's really full of soft focused sex scenes and rather continual births. It wouldn't be my top pick. And then we've got The Tudors, all episodes of The Tudors, which, unlike those so far, is actually available on Channel 4 online. You'll remember The Tudors, I imagine. It came out first in 2007. It stars Jonathan Rhys-Myers as Henry VIII, alongside Ray Winstone. It's probably the most improbable casting choice one could have for this king. And famously in this version, he doesn't get old and he doesn't get fat. The Tudors, I think it'd be fair to say, launched the career of Henry Cavill, later Superman. It has Natalie Dormer as a very beautiful Anne Boleyn. Bit of a theme here. And it was described at the time it came out by Mark Lawson as soft porn disguised as history. In it, time is often truncated, characters are often conflated, but it's very modern, very pacey. And at the heart of it, we have a very infantile, sex-obsessed, selfish Henry VIII. And then the latest offering about Henry VIII is the Wolf Hall series, which you can find on BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK. The series made of Hilary Mantel's trilogy of novels, which starts with Wolf Hall. So this is a drama based on a novel. It's been fictionalised twice over and it features Mark Rylance, the wonderful theatre actor playing Cromwell, which is an interesting choice because he has such a kind face and Cromwell was not a kind character. But I suppose it brings to our attention that we are seeing things in this novel and in this film from Cromwell's perspective. This is his own estimation of himself. It's only other people who see him as dangerous. And like Robert Shaw in A Man for All Seasons, Damien Lewis plays a magnificently terrifying Henry VIII. Now, what if you fancy watching something about Elizabeth I? Well, again, you could go back to some early films from the 1930s. There are two in particular, Fire Over England from 1937 with Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. So this is a historical drama focusing on England's victory over the Spanish Armada very much of the 1930s. And then there's The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex from 1939, which stars Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis as Elizabeth and built on the success of The Private Life of Henry VIII, which had been made six years earlier. If you fast forward through time, then you get to more recent outings of Elizabeth, the 1998 film Elizabeth by Shekhar Kapoor, which I'll come back to, and its sequel Elizabeth the Golden Age, available to stream on basically everything, and Elizabeth I, the two-part drama from 2005 with Helen Mirren playing the ageing virgin queen. That is on Channel 4 online and worth a watch. In 2006, The Virgin Queen was made with Amory Duff now playing Elizabeth and Tom Hardy as Robert Dudley. That's on Amazon. And then there was Anonymous from 2011, 
a film based on the controversial Oxfordian theory that it was actually Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, who was the author of Shakespeare's plays. It stars Rhys Ifan as Oxford and Vanessa Redgrave as Elizabeth. I actually really enjoyed the film, though I'm personally not convinced at all by the argument. And then a few more things, just three more, before we go into a deep dive. So other things about the period. Lady Jane is a 1986 film that was directed by Trevor Nunn. It tells the story of Lady Jane Grey, but this version concentrates especially on the romantic aspect of her marriage to Guilford Dudley. And one of the only films in which she's really been the central character. Then there's Mary Queen of Scots, the film from 2018 by Josie Rourke with Sasha Ronan and Margot Robbie. It's a beautiful, lavish film. It caused something of a stir when it came out. It was the target of historians' ire for the fact that in the film, which was given away in a trailer, Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots meet when they never did so in real life. But sitting and watching people write letters to each other isn't such an interesting thing to watch. There is actually much history here you can trust. Even some of the most scandalous moments of the film, as you'll have noted from my recent episode on the death of David Rizzio, actually might seem far-fetched, but are historically accurate. Still, it's an interesting version of the past and something worth talking about more in the future, I think. Then there's The Devil's Whore, which is on Channel 4 Online, a four-part series about the Civil War, which I greatly enjoyed, and its sequel, New Worlds, which is set, we're told, in the turbulent 1680s. And that's before we even get on to thinking about Medici or any of the series or films about European history in this period. I'll come back to those another time. But what I want to do after the break is give you an in-depth review of one film in particular, Elizabeth I from 1998 by Shekhar Kapoor with Kate Blanchett playing the titular role. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world as far as we can tell anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things Pompeii, it's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day, no one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Shekhar Kapoor's Elizabeth is a striking, beautiful, dramatic film. The first thing I want to say about it is I love it. I think it's a really enjoyable film. It was very successful when it was made. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It won one. It was up for and won lots of other awards. It's suspenseful. It's dramatic. It's a thriller. But how much can you trust it as history? And I ought to say now that what follows contains spoilers. You may wish to press pause, watch the film and come back to this point. So I said it's Shekhar Kapoor's Elizabeth, which is partly a handy moniker just to identify which one it is. He was the director and I want to talk a little about his oeuvre in a second. But the writer was Michael Hurst who also created and wrote 38 episodes of The Tudors, the Jonathan Rhys Myers series, and has more recently written The Vikings. So you've almost certainly come across his work. And the question of how much you can trust this film as history is important because it presents itself as history. The opening titles say this is England in 1554, and there is a sort of closing title and epilogue as well so it sets itself up self-consciously in a historical moment. There's many moments where Hearst is using words from the historical record. What Elizabeth is fabled to have said when she became queen, that she has the body of a weak and feeble woman but the heart and stomach of a king, uh, that she doesn't want to make windows into men's souls. Obviously the look is designed to be Elizabethan One example, the film pauses deliberately to recreate the coronation portrait that we have of Elizabeth, both in terms of its costuming and in terms of sort of the shot composition. We see the picture that you can see at the National Portrait Gallery recreated on screen. We're supposed to believe it. Of course, even that portrait was a form of propaganda to spread the myth of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth was crowned in 1558. That portrait was painted in 1600. And that basically is what the film is doing too. It's creating a myth about Elizabeth, not specifically history. As I said, the director was the Indian director, Shaka Kapoor, who had previously made in 1984 the Hindi language film Bandit Queen. The story of Fulan Devi, who was a lower caste woman who was repeatedly raped and beaten by higher caste men and who becomes a gang leader, an outlaw and takes her revenge and astonishingly later became an MP. She was someone who actually existed and she actually existed at the time that the film was being made. So the theme of that film was about innocence and its loss, which is repeated in Elizabeth. But Fulan Devi complained about the veracity of its treatment and fought to get it banned in India, and the novelist Arundhati Roy said that it was exploitative. Which makes one wonder what approach Kapoor might have to his subjects when they're not alive to complain. What Kapoor does bring from Bandit Queen into this Tudor Queen story, however, is something of the richness and glory and colour of that film to Elizabeth's court, and also the sort of breathlessness, the paciness of it. And in so doing, he makes a radical break with costume dramas that had been created before. It's a superlative cast list. Kate Blanchett, 
of course, plays Elizabeth I. She won a Golden Globe for Best Actress. She was nominated for an Oscar. It's almost impossible to believe that before this, she was almost unknown. She'd been an Oscar and Lucinda, but she certainly wasn't the big name that she is today. We've got Kathy Burke playing Mary. We've got Joseph Fiennes as Robert Dudley. Joseph Fiennes obviously has a very 16th century face. In the same year, he made Shakespeare in love. Later, he was cast as Martin Luther in the film Luther. And also in this, we have Geoffrey Rush and Richard Attenborough. And we have Vincent Cassel. We have, amazingly, John Gilgood in his final feature, playing the Pope. And we have a cameo from Daniel Craig in a sort of very Da Vinci code type moment as a priest and lots of other people, Emily Mortimer and others amongst them. And the film depicts the last years of Mary's reign and the early years of Elizabeth. And the story being told really is of Elizabeth moving from being a young, sensual, vulnerable woman to becoming the indomitable virgin queen who has supposedly suppressed her womanly nature. And we are given a contrast between the dark court of Mary, literally swathed in blackness. It's gloomy. It's suffocating. It appears to be in some sort of crypt of a church. And amongst her womenfolk is a dwarf, which may have been historically accurate. There certainly were dwarves at many Renaissance courts. But in the film is kind of signalling unnaturalness or aberrance. And Mary is played by Kathy Burke, who's been made deliberately unattractive and hysterical. We're told that she's childless, but she's claiming to be pregnant. So we're sort of supposed to assume that she has lost it, I suppose. And there is a sense of lying being at the heart of her court, which is also portrayed as kind of unpleasantly foreign and feminine. Contrast with Elizabeth, who appears on the screen, surrounded by sunshine, outdoors. It's bright, it's colourful. In fact, the screen flashes bright white twice. We hear girly giggling. We see nubile young women dancing, dressed in pre-Raphaelite kind of clothing, pastel colours, mingling with men. It's all supposed to be healthy and natural and heterosexual. And... She wears her hair loose. She's not bound up like poor old Mary. Never mind that loose hair in the 16th century was not only a symbol of maidenhood, but also of being a loose woman. In fact, she is something of a loose woman by 16th century standards. We see Elizabeth and Robert Dudley caressing in a way that would have been quite immoral for the Tudors. They have a sort of quick snog around the back of the castle when seducing the heir to the throne would have been treasonous. Above all, though, what is going on is that Kapoor was perpetuating the image of Mary and Elizabeth that has reached posterity. The image of Mary that was fuelled by anti-Catholic bigotry in the centuries that followed, that came from writers in Elizabeth's reign, like John Fox's Acts and Monuments, or his Book of Martyrs, or Raphael Hollinshed, the chronicler whose chronicles were first published in 1577 and who famously was a major source for Shakespeare, Hollinshed wrote this, After all the stormy, tempestuous and blustering windy weather of Queen Mary was overblown, the darksome clouds of discomfort dispersed, the palpable fogs and mists and most intolerable misery consumed, and the dashing showers of persecution overpassed, it pleased God to send England a calm and quiet season, a clear and lovely sunshine. 
I mean, that is literally what Kapoor is creating on screen here. There are three major themes in this film. The first is of religion, and it's a question of Catholicism versus Protestantism. On the positive side, the film takes seriously the divisive potential of religion in the 16th century, but it does so at some cost to impartiality. The New York Times reviewer called it a resolutely anti-Catholic drama. Every single Catholic, the reviewer writes, in the film is dark, cruel and devious. Now, Mary, of course, was a Catholic and she considered the Protestants to be heretics. The film opens with a burning of heretics. The Protestant bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, which did happen in 1555 in a ditch outside Oxford. But with them in the opening scene, there is also an entirely made-up female martyr who has had her head shaved just as they have done. The three are tied together and suffer a horrible death. They burn too slowly. The crowd is horrified. Latimer and Ridley were burnt at the same time, but they weren't burnt together. Latimer died quickly, but Fox tells us that Ridley suffered protracted agony. And here we're very much supposed to be with Fox on the side of a crowd who are supposed to be sort of inherently Protestant and opposed to the burnings. When people later rebel against Mary in the film, it's because Catholics are bad and fanatical. We have Mary saying to Elizabeth, do not take away from the people the consolations of the Virgin, their blessed mother, when we're shown that the people don't find consolations in the Virgin. And Elizabeth smiles a kind of bemused smile as if she's in on the joke. So this is a classic story that Kapoor is rehearsing here, that Catholicism is the past, that the English people were meant to be Protestant, the sort of inexorable rise of Protestantism under good Queen Bess and all those who stood in its way are dark and evil and vainly standing against the tide of history. It's the myth of Elizabeth we've inherited ever since. Recent scholarship actually suggests that many people clung to Catholicism and it was only sort of relinquished over generations. But actually the Elizabeth in this film is also more modern she says things like, I ask why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion. This is heresy, her bishops say. No, this is common sense, which is a most English virtue, she replies, and we smile with her. These are very 20th century sentiments. It's highly unlikely that Elizabeth would have thought that religion was small beer. And the scholarship has actually debated whether it was even conceptually possible to be an atheist in the 16th century. So if Elizabeth clung more to Protestantism, than Catholicism, we shouldn't necessarily assume that, that she wasn't devout and sincere and genuine in that. The secret irony of laughing at religion characterises more recent worldviews than Elizabeth's. The second theme is of conspiracy. So producer Tim Bevan said this, With the early part of her reign being filled with such uncertainty, we decided to structure it as a conspiracy thriller, which is fair enough. And Alison Owen said, we were a lot more influenced by films like The Godfather than previous historical dramas. And that's a really interesting insight, because like The Godfather, there is a sensitive innocent here who survives in a brutal world only by learning to be ruthless and by eliminating her rivals. This is Elizabeth as Michael Corleone. And the denouement is the same. And there certainly were many threats against Elizabeth in her reign. But they're not quite as they're depicted here. We have a chronology problem. 
At the end of the film, we're told that Elizabeth will reign for 40 more years. So that suggests that we're ending in 1563, given that Elizabeth died in 1603. We're told at the beginning that the film starts in 1554. So this is a period that covers the first five years of her reign, 1558-1563. In actual historical chronology, there were no threats until 1570, when the papal ball, Regnus in Excelsis, was published by the Pope, allowing subjects to rebel against their queen and assassinate her. The Duke of Norfolk's plotting against her was in 1569. He was executed in 1572. The assassination attempt on the Thames was in 1578. The filmmakers have compressed time for dramatic purposes, which is basically fine. But the film also rewrites history at its own convenience in ways that are more problematic. Elizabeth wasn't threatened by her own court. The Catholic bishops didn't demand Elizabeth's removal. No priest tried to murder her. No maid of honour died in a poisoned dress. Walsingham never murdered the French queen. And of the five victims of the bloodbirth here, only Norfolk died on her orders. Gardner had actually died of illness in 1555, three years before Elizabeth became queen. So we've got history being fabricated here to create a situation where Elizabeth has to conquer her enemies. The final theme is of sexuality and gender. Elizabeth and Dudley have a steamy sex scene, and this produced extraordinary criticism in the press. The Daily Telegraph said in an editorial, which I think was not tongue-in-cheek, to question Elizabeth's virtue 400 years after her death is not just a blackly slur upon a good Christian woman, but an insult to our fathers who fought for her. It should rouse England to chivalrous anger. Now, if this is genuine outrage, it indicates the importance of the Elizabeth myth. So I guess we have to think about the question, was Elizabeth a virgin? Well, it was highly unlikely that she and Dudley had the sort of sex that leads to children because pregnancy would have been a terrible scandal. But it's also highly unlikely they were left alone to even get up to anything else. It just wasn't in the culture of the 16th century for that to be the case for a queen. It is, however, true that they acted as lovers whether they were or not. The Venetian ambassador Paolo Tipolo noted that Dudley was in great favour and very intimate with Her Majesty, while the Spanish ambassador Ferrier wrote scandalised that during the last few days, Lord Robert has come so much into favour that he does whatever he likes with affairs, and has even said that Her Majesty visits him in his chamber day and night. So this film is playing into the rumour that was circulating at the time. Writer Michael Hurst said it was just a small nudge in the direction of romanticism. And certainly as a device, it allows Elizabeth to become a virgin later in the film. It's a very central film. Dudley wanders around undressed by Tudor standards, frankly. He is wearing his linen shift or smock and the poor chap doesn't seem to know how to do up his doublet. The only time he manages it is when he's influenced by the Catholics and the Spanish, which is a clear sartorial sign that he's not feeling himself. The romance between Dudley and Elizabeth fizzles out when she learns she cannot marry him as he's already married and her love is doused by his plotting against her. But Dudley's first wife, Amy Robsart, died in 1560, and he didn't marry again until 1578. So there were 18 years in which Elizabeth could have married him, had she wanted to. She didn't because of the domestic political opposition, and, of course, the circumstances in which Amy Robsart had died. But it wasn't because he was plotting against her. It was more her deliberate decision not to. 
do so. Perhaps that's a better story. However, the deathbed story that she may have mentioned his name on her deathbed, that may be true. However, the Dudley-Elizabeth relationship is perhaps the most minor sexual foible in this film. There's lots of what would have been considered transgressive sexuality in the 16th century. Vincent Cassel, who plays the Duc d'Anjou brilliantly, is a transvestite. And in this, he is playing a composite character between two sons of the French king, Henri, who was a transvestite, and François, who was the Duc d'Anjou, who came to England to court Elizabeth in 1579. So actually 20 years later than it's depicted in this film. And then the other thing is, there are actually two versions of this film. If you see Walsingham having a homosexual affair, that's the appropriate terminology, with a young French boy before killing him, and then having sex with Marie de Guise before killing her, you're watching the cinematic version. We also see Dudley having illicit sex with a maid who's pretending to be Elizabeth before she dies. And all Elizabeth's traitors are murdered in the midst of very private activities. One's sitting on the loo, one is self-flagellating, one is having sex. The sex and death link is pretty strong in this film. But above all, this film is about sort of gender and power. At the end of the film, Elizabeth is made over. In fact, the makeup is what won the film its Oscar. And her hair is cropped. Echoing, of course, the female heretic at the start of the film. She herself has become a martyr to the state. She herself now has a heart of stone. She is recast as England's replacement for the Virgin Mary. She seeks to replace the Virgin Mary in her subjects' hearts. This is no feminist heroine. This is a very conservative view of the relationship between femininity and power. But it does make for a jolly good film. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.